grab your Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, just before we have it read, uh, we're here in the Sermon on the Mount. I said two weeks ago that uh, I think this is the, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. I also put down the challenge that it's probably the least applied sermon in the world. Because if you and I took this word seriously, if we heeded what Jesus is saying, I can guarantee that your Christian life would look radically different. And I can guarantee this church would look different and the way that the world views this church would look very, very different if we really did take Jesus at his word. And Jesus starts off the sermon with these beatitudes. Blessed are uh, the people who find favor with God or the people who, who are poor in spirit, who who recognize they come before God with nothing to give him. Uh, They hunger after God's righteousness. They they, they long to to, to know God better. Uh, There are people who are meek, who are humble towards other people, and they're always seeking peace. Uh, They're the people who who God says are blessed, who find his favor. And I said last week that, that we are radically different as Christians, And that means that you and I can make a a radical difference in the world. That was the extraordinary thing from from our sermon last week, that that you, little you, in in your mundane lives in North Sydney, you can make a difference in this world. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus says. By that he means that you can prevent decay in the world. You are the light of the world. You're the people who can promote goodness in this world. And what you're going to see tonight in our, our next section, which is actually really tricky and hard to preach on, is that Jesus really demands these two things, or this one thing, uh, radical righteousness. Very simple. It's totally profound. Uh, Jesus is saying, if you, if you follow me, if you love me, if you really are my disciple, then your lives will be radically Righteous. Righteous is just a word that means uh, upright, pure, perfect, uh, behaving God's way, living the right way, a righteous life. And Jesus is saying to you and I tonight, if you really do love me, you will strive to live these pure, upright, right lives. As I've been preparing for tonight's sermon, I do hope that you'll find this sermon liberating. I hope you won't leave here feeling burdened or feeling sort of grievous and weighed down by this. Because remember, you can't do this by yourself. By yourself, you can never do what this sermon tells you. Because like me, we're just all miserable sinners and we can't do it. You will fail. I will fail. But the amazing thing is that God's Spirit lives in me and lives in you if you're a believer. And God's Spirit is infinitely powerful. And He can equip you and He can enable you to strive to keep these commands. And I hope you'll see how, how beautiful and how lovely life could be if you took this sermon seriously. So in Jesus' day, just like today, there are already three groups of people. On one extreme, they're the people who, who love rules, who love the law. And they're kind of people who just say in a sermon, Paul, just tell me what to do. 
just tell me what I can do and what I can't do, and then I'll be satisfied. And they're the kind of people who, who reach the end of the day, and they, they lie in bed, and they look back on the day, and they feel good about themselves, so they can tick off the list. I've done this, and I haven't done this. How good am I? And Jesus calls those people Pharisees. At the other end of the spectrum are the people who, they hate the law, they hate the rules, and they, they play the grace card. You know, it's all about grace. I've got the cross, I've got my saviour, you know, I can do what I want, because God will always forgive me. And they're the kind of people who, who stand in church and they sing about loving Jesus and sing about living for Jesus, but they just go out there and they decide what they can and can't do. The people who hate the rules, who people who love the rules, and in the middle, I reckon to where most of us sit, uh, they're the people that I call who are comfortably righteous. I'll say that again, we're comfortably righteous. And so we know it's not about rules, and we know we can't earn our salvation, we know it's all about grace, but we're comfortably righteous because we have decided where we put the boundaries in our life. And we have decided which bit of God's word we like and we don't like. And we're kind of like, as long as this doesn't demand too much of me, my time and my talents and my natural tendencies, we're just comfortably righteous. And our Christian life isn't too demanding. And what this sermon does, what Jesus does, is he says to you and to me, I didn't call you to be comfortably righteous. I called you, I called you to be radically righteous. I called you to be totally different. I'd look at the bookends of this, of this section, uh, 5 verse 20. I, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the, those legalistic rule keepers, unless your, your goodness and, and your right living is better than the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Look how he ends in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard, perfection. Let me remind you, you can't do this, you won't do it, you will fail, but we should be striving for that. And I find that exciting. I do find that exciting, that in my Christian life I can be striving for perfection. I won't get there, but that's what my goal is, to live to please my God. So I'll pray, and then John's going to bring us our reading. Uh, Father, thank you for this part of the scriptures. Yeah, Lord, it's just tough. It is a tough part of the word. And I pray that as we hear it now, uh, that, you, you, that you will put in our hearts this, this desire and this longing just to obey what you say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have it read. It's Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Good evening, everyone. Those of you who don't know me, my name's John, and uh, I'm going to be reading the first section of this passage, and Fiona will follow on shortly. Uh, so, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to, others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his uh, brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may, may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you the truth, I said, pardon, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks, guys. Strange, you have to uh, preach a sermon on a sermon. (laughs) Because we'd actually just sit down and say, Amen, because that's all you need to hear. Live radically righteous, different lives in all areas. You know, what you look at, the way you treat people, the way you respond in anger, the way you pursue reconciliation. But what is going to help you and I to, to, to grasp how we're to live these radically righteous lives? And it comes down to one thing, it's really your attitude to God's law or your attitude to God's word. It's really your attitude to which bits of the Bible still apply to you today. Which bit of the scriptures you think as a Christian you must obey. You see, there's some people who say, oh, you know, I like the New Testament but not the Old Testament. I, I like the Gospels but not Paul's writings. Or I just don't like the Bible at all. It's all about love. Uh, what what do you think Jesus would say towards the scriptures? Well, here's Jesus, and remember, Jesus is the new kid on the block. He's never been to theological college. He's never been to the school of Pharisees, and here he is teaching, and people are listening, and people are, are changing because of what he says. And the Pharisees are asking, well, who is he? Does he believe the word of God? Has he come to do away with the Old Testament? Is this some totally new teaching? Uh, look at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's Jesus' way of saying the Old Testament, the law. Yes, it includes the Ten Commandments, but it's more than that. It's what the Old Testament teaches about life and conduct and behavior, the law and and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. Verse 18. I've come not to come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And straight away, Jesus is saying, it's all relevant. It's all reliable. It's all truthful. He's saying, you can't believe in me and reject the Old Testament. You can't call yourself a Christian and just totally ignore what what the Old Testament says. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. You might say, oh, oh, well, why did Jesus abolish the food laws in Mark 7? And why does the writer of the Hebrews tell us that we don't need a sacrificial system anymore? Uh, The key is the word fulfill in verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What some Christians do here is they come up with these three very neat, very clever uh, distinctions. And so they say, well, you've got the, the civil law which is basically how Israel as a nation was supposed to behave. We can ignore those now because we're not a nation called Israel. And you've got the, the ceremonial law, all about the sacrifices and the blood and the tabernacle. Well, Jesus fulfilled that at the cross, so ignore that now. And then you've got the moral law, you know, what you're, what you're to think, what you're to do, and that's still binding. And that's nice, and that's neat. But I don't find that distinction in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's just a convenient way that Christians have come up with getting around these verses. So what does this, what does this word fulfill really mean? Let me show you how, 
how varied it is. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law in that uh, he kept it. Do you understand that? Uh, Jesus was under the law as a man. As a man who lived on earth, he wasn't above the law. He was under the law, but he kept it perfectly. Even when he was persecuted, they said, oh, he's done nothing wrong. He fulfilled it in that he kept it. He fulfilled it in that all the prophecies that pointed towards him have now come to completion. You know, the prophecy about in Micah 5 about the, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That's happened. And the prophecy from Isaiah about, you know, he'd be pierced for our transgressions. That's happened. And the prophecy that the Gentiles will come in. That's happened. And the prophecy that the, the Holy Spirit will come from Joel chapter 2. That's happened. It all happened in Jesus. But more than that, he, he fulfilled the law in that he satisfied the demands of the law. You've got to understand this as a Christian. At Calvary, Jesus completely satisfied the demands of God's law. Because God's law said that if you disobey, you should be punished, and the punishment is death. And here you've got the holy, perfect righteous one who was sacrificed on your behalf so the penalty for sin has been paid the price has been paid and so in in all these varied ways Jesus fulfilled the law he kept it he fulfilled the prophecies he satisfied the demands of the law so what does that mean for you and I how should we read the old testament law now one of the most helpful things that someone said to me was that it's almost like when Jesus comes he gives you a new pair of glasses and so when you, you read the old, these are not mine, by the way. Someone left, someone, someone left them in church about two weeks ago. I know who they are. It's okay. Uh, when, you, when you read the law, you read it with the Jesus glasses on. And you, you do the hard work in the Old Testament. You say, uh, how did Jesus fulfill this? Has that been completed in Christ or, or not? Am I still under this or not? And there are no easy answers. Reading the scriptures is not easy, it's hard work. You do the hard work in your Bibles, in your Old Testament to say, am I under this? Yes, no, yes, no. One of the things I hate is when I walk into a, uh, a Christian bookshop and I see those little books and they've got the word New Testament. Because the New Testament by itself is not the scriptures. It started with Genesis It goes through to Revelation. It's one book. It all points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to him. The the New Testament points back to him. And so when you open your scriptures, please please don't play the the grace card. You know, uh, well, the law was all about earning salvation. The law was never about earning salvation. The law was always about enjoying your salvation. Have you got that? The law was always given so the people of God could enjoy their relationship with God. And so if you want to enjoy your relationship with God, if you want to have a deeper relationship with God, it's about reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament, reading the law with your Jesus glasses on. Saying, how can I enjoy this more? But I reckon we're Pharisees. When it comes to the law, I reckon we'd like the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? They were upright, they were devoted, uh, they were famous for their righteousness. Uh, The Pharisees apparently calculated that the law contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. 
And they came up with this, this uh, elaborate code of conduct to make sure that they kept all those commandments and avoided all those prohibitions. And people would say, oh, I could never be as good as, as good as the Pharisees. And that's why verse 20 is so shocking. Because Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus mean by that? We, we can never do it, can we? Here's the issue with the Pharisees. And this is why I think we're Pharisees. The Pharisees were obsessed with the externals. And God is more concerned with the internal. The Pharisees were obsessed with what they did. And Jesus says, yeah, what you do, it does matter. But more importantly is your, your motive behind it. And why you're doing it. We can all keep rules. We can all keep laws. But the issue is what's happening in here. Why are you doing it? You know, the Pharisees created these man-made rules to, to make it easier to keep the law. Because it's all about just ticking the box. And I reckon that's where God's law kicks in for most of us. Now we come to church and we almost want a, a detailed textbook of what I can and can't do. Actually, what I can't do. That's what we really want to know. Because we do measure godliness by what we haven't done rather than by what we do do. And that's why verse 20 is so full on because he's saying, you know, your desires. That's what verse 20 really means. You're you're longing for righteousness. Because remember, you, you are righteous in Christ. You can never do it, but you are righteous in Christ. And that's why if you're in Jesus, your righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees because you're already righteous in Jesus. But your desire and your longing to live God's way, it should be there in here. Not just the external ticks of the boxes. So let me show you with two examples. We'll take two examples this week and four examples next week. Here's the first one. It's all about anger. Verse 21. Uh, You've heard it was said to the people long ago... Do not murder. That's right. That's the sixth commandment. That's in Exodus 20. They, they, they're good at quoting scriptures. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's right. It's Numbers 35. They've, they've actually blended two bits of scripture and made it say something it doesn't say. But that is the commandment. That's the Lord. Do not murder. Now, how do you read that word? How do you read that commandment? I reckon we're Pharisees. So the Pharisees would say something like, oh, I have never murdered. Murder, by definition, is the physical act of killing somebody. I've never done that. And so we can start to feel smug and feel righteous and say, hey, that's okay, I'm okay. And Jesus comes in with this, like, this, this, uh, this right hook. And he says, uh, but I tell you, let me, let me show you the true meaning behind that law. Let me show you the motive behind that law. I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, that's a bit harsh. Well, let me show you why that's a true meaning behind the law. You ever thought about why people murder? Why do people actually murder? I mean, very rarely is it a random act, is it? This is how murder happens. Uh, You have a disagreement with somebody and you don't like them. And then you see them again, and the, the hatred grows. 
And they do the same thing again, and then that hatred turns into this, this blood-curdling anger. And, and then the anger grows, and it bores, and it bores, and it bores, until you're raging, and you're raging, and that's the moment of murder. See, murder is just the final act. What's happening in here is anger. And it gets worse. Verse 21. Sorry, verse 22. Uh, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is just a, an Aramaic term of abuse, or, or you fool, you idiot, you halfwit. Uh, Jesus is not talking about different levels of anger or different levels of judgment. He's a, a very clever preacher who is making us feel the weight. And this is the weight of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my friends, you think you're so far removed from the murderers. And you read of the murderers in the paper and you hear about it on TV and you go, that is disgusting. And Jesus is saying to you tonight, have you never thought those evil thoughts about somebody? Have you never had that disagreement where you actually hate the other person? Have you never had that, that resentment with someone at work and you think you're an idiot? Have you never verbalized that, you stupid idiot? Have you never had your, your ego so bruised you just want to get even? Have you never felt those unpleasant, hostile resentments? Have you never abused someone verbally or non-verbally? Well, you're a murderer. That's what Jesus would say. 1 John chapter 3, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So I want to put my hand up now. I'm a murderer. And I'm guessing you are as well. Because that anger and that hatred is just part of our natural, sinful, selfish hearts. And that's when you run back to the cross, you know. And you go back to Jesus and you say, I've failed again, haven't I? Please help me, Lord. It's, it's not enough to go back and just say sorry. It's actually going back to Jesus and saying, please change me. Please get rid of this evil thoughts. Please get rid of this hatred. Please get rid of this anger. And before you, before you start to say to me, oh, uh, Paul, what about Jesus? He got angry. He did get angry, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Jesus got angry when he saw injustice, and Jesus got angry when he saw sin. Uh, Jesus got angry when he saw his father's house being turned into a marketplace. I am very slow to get angry at injustice and sin. But I'm very quick to get angry when my ego is bruised or my pride is dented. And I'm very slow to get angry when I see God's name being dishonored or, be, or God's name being uh, maligned. I'm slow to get angry then, but I'm very quick to get angry when my name is dishonored. And I'm guessing you're the same. So how do you... Avoid anger. How do you avoid these bitterness and these unkind words? Jesus pushes it further. See, the way you avoid anger is not just a list of what you can and can't do. It's actually about pursuing uh, reconciliation. As I was preparing this week, I actually, for a day, kept a list of all the times I got angry. It's incredible how many times a day you do get angry. I got angry with the person who was driving too slowly in front of me and 
I got angry with a person at track session on Thursday night who had blocked my path when I was running, and I got angry at my computer, an inanimate object, and I'm shouting at it. You know? How do you get rid of anger? It's actually about having a different perspective on other people. It's actually about recognizing that, that they're a person and you're a person, and we're there to actually to think about the grace of God in their lives and say kind words to them. And if they have hurt you, if they have wronged you, you pursue reconciliation. So here's the scenario. You're at church. Maybe you're on the worship team. Maybe you're on welcoming team. Or maybe you're preaching. But you know here it's all a sham. It's not that you don't love God. Of course you love God. But it's a sham because there's somebody else sitting in the same building who is hostile towards you. And you've wronged them or you've lied about them or you've gossiped about them or you've slandered them. And Jesus says, get up, leave church and sort it out. Get rid of that hatred. Get rid of that anger. That's what he's saying in verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar... So you're in a worship service and you remember that your brother, your Christian brother or sister, has something against you. You've wronged them in some way. Leave your gift. Stop the pretense. And go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. And Jesus is saying it's more important to be reconciled than to go through this sham or pretense called church. Now, I don't like telling people to miss church. But one good reason to miss church is if there's somebody here that you need to actually do business with. And sort out your differences. There's a couple at this church who were driving to church one Saturday night and uh, they told me how they had a massive row in the car <laughs> coming to church. And they arrived at church and they parked the car. And they didn't do what most of us do, which is slam the car doors and put on the big smiley face and say, Hi, yes, I'm fine. How are you? Having a lovely time and our marriage is good. They actually drove away from church. And they went and sat and sorted out their differences and resolved their differences. And that was the right thing to do. Because to come to church that night and to sing songs and to worship God when there's hatred in your heart is just a sham. And do that quickly. Verse 25, that's what verse 25 is about. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Do it as soon as possible. As soon as you realize there's tension, sort it out. Because that's the issue with anger in your heart or hatred in your heart. It festers and it's poisonous. You ever had that experience? Well, you know there's hatred between someone at church. And you analyze everything they do. The way they look at you. (laughs) You think there's some agenda behind it. You see them talking to another group of people and, uh, and you assume they're talking about you. And it kind of just grows and grows and grows. It poisons you and it poisons the body. And radical righteousness, living lives which are so different and set apart for Jesus, will mean that you, uh, you avoid anger, you get rid of malice, you get rid of the envy, you get rid of the slander, and you always, always pursue reconciliation. There may be a situation where you're not able to be reconciled because a person doesn't admit there's anything wrong. If that is the case, then in your own heart, you've got to reach the stage where you can say, actually, no, I hold nothing against you. 
And we haven't actually resolved this, but I hold nothing against you. I hold no hatred against you. When I see you, it's okay. That is radical righteousness. You ready for punch number two? Avoiding adultery. Verse 27. Uh, You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. That's right, that's the seventh commandment. Exodus chapter 20. Now what do you do with that commandment? What's your attitude to God's law? Are you a Pharisee? Do not commit adultery. How do you read that? I tell you what we do, we, we try and define what adultery really is. Uh, by adultery, I think Jesus means extramarital sex. And I've never done that, so that's okay, so I'm righteous. Uh, by adultery, I think Jesus is really talking about premarital sex. And that's okay, I, I don't do that, so I'm righteous. And we start to feel smug because we, we define very narrowly what that word adultery means. And we're Pharisees. And Jesus shows us the true meaning of that law. Because adultery is not just the action. Adultery is the attitude. It's what's happening in here or with these things called our eyes. Because Jesus says down in verse 28, I tell you anyone who looks, lust, who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or anyone who looks at a man lustfully has already committed adultery with him in her heart. See what the law does? Uh, the real motive behind the law is, is purity. Uh, Jesus is very concerned with what we do with our eyes and with our minds. Because lust is really adultery. Lust is when you, you spot somebody who you find attractive and that, that's okay. It's when you let your imagination start to wander. That is lust. John Piper says this, uh, lust is a sexual desire minus holiness and honor. It's a sexual desire minus holiness and minus honor. And so you take that natural sexual desire and you remove uh, your holiness towards another person and your, your holiness towards God, your honor towards them and your honor towards God. It's not lust to be attracted towards somebody. It becomes lust when you start to undress them with your eyes. And it's not lust to notice that somebody is good-looking. It becomes lust when you flirt and when you fantasize. And it's not lust to experience sexual temptation. It becomes lust when you, you feed that temptation or dwell on that temptation or, again, you, you fantasize or act on it. And that's how radical Jesus' words really are. He's saying that with your eyes you're pure and with your mind you're pure. And that is very difficult, isn't it? You know, go to the beach, uh, walk into your office place, turn on the TV, click on the internet, listen to pop songs, and it's sex, 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 sex. And it's hard not to lust. So how do you avoid adultery? Uh, Jesus has a radical solution in verse 29. If you're right, I cause you to sin, gouge it out right away he's not saying that literally he's saying you know behave as if your eyes have been taken out and when you see that person it's almost like you just close your eyes and you say no no my eyes have gone I don't want to do that and your hand verse 30 
if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. Get rid of it. He's saying take radical action to deal with your lust problem. Uh, don't flirt with it. Don't play around the edges. Hate it. Crush it. Do away with it. And don't be like the rest of our generation and treat sin so lightly. Friends, lust is a problem for most believers. It's a problem for most of us. We've got to learn to fight. And the way you fight, listen carefully, is not to have a list of do's and don'ts. I've been there. It never works. The best way to fight your lust problem, the best way to, to conquer your lust problem, is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Simple as that. The more you love Jesus, the more you will hate lust. And the more you love Jesus, the more that you will fight against your lust. And the more that you love Jesus, the truly righteous one, the more that you will strive and strive and strive to live his way. And you will look differently and you will think differently because you love your Savior. The other way that you fight lust is to love marriage. I don't mean idolize marriage, but please respect other people's marriages. Please respect other people's marriages and respect your own marriage. That's what Jesus goes to say in verse 31. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who, commits, who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Let me say, I'm aware this is a very controversial and a very complex topic. And I'm aware it touches people at the rawest and deepest level. And I'm very aware of the pain the real pain that many people in this building are feeling at this moment at that word divorce. And I don't want to be glib. I really do not want to be glib. I don't have time to unpack in the details I'd like to. Uh, but Jesus is, is just clear about the beauty of marriage and how we should respect our marriages. And so he says in verse 31, uh, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. It's not quite true. The Pharisees are quoting from Deuteronomy 24. And what Deuteronomy 24 says, you know, is that if a man finds his wife unclean, is the word, unclean, and if he divorces her, he doesn't have to divorce her, but if he divorces her, and if she marries another man and he divorces her, then the woman is not allowed to remarry her first husband. That's what the law says. But what the Pharisees do is what we do is that we look at that word unclean and we try and think, oh, how, what does that mean? How can we define that? And the Pharisees had taken that word unclean and they'd made it say whatever they wanted. You know, so the grounds for divorce of the Pharisees were, she burnt my dinner. Uh, I find her unattractive. Uh, we've just drifted apart. And they've made this thing wider and wider and wider until there's no uh, love for marriage anymore. The Pharisees took divorce lightly. Our world takes divorce lightly. Our church is beginning to take divorce lightly. And Jesus takes it very seriously. Again, uh, please hear me very clearly. I know that many of us are feeling pain here. But Jesus' standard is pretty high. He says there's one exception, and that's unfaithfulness. 
and the word there is porneia. It is fornication. It's not drifting apart. It's not falling out of love. It's sexual immorality. And even then, you don't have to divorce. If there has been adultery, the right thing to do is is to seek reconciliation, to pursue purity, to, to be working hard at building up and forgiving if that's possible. One thing I've, le- I've learned as a pastor is when a couple come to you in marital problems, please never start with the grounds for divorce. That's the wrong starting point. You start with the beauty of marriage uh, and the, the beautiful thing called one man and one woman for eternity or for this life. If you start with the grounds for divorce, you're starting down the wrong track. You start with pursuing reconciliation and pursuing purity and pursuing forgiveness. That's radical righteousness, isn't it? Having such a, a respect for marriages, having such a respect for sex, having such a respect for your brother and sister that you use your eyes with purity, you use your mind with purity, you use your actions with purity. Because you want to honor Jesus. I told you this was tough. Avoid anger. Avoid adultery. That is the the depth of the law. And it is totally liberating. Because you and I can actually strive to be like our Savior. Do you remember when he was beaten and mocked and when people were angry with him? He didn't retaliate. He actually said, Father, forgive them. He was seeking to always pursue reconciliation. And he, with his eyes and with his mind, just totally pure. And the, the amazing thing is that you and I have been clothed with the, the righteousness of Jesus. We are righteous and we're filled with his spirit and we're just called to pursue radical righteousness. And so my challenge this week, Church by the Bridge, is this. Please don't be satisfied with comfortable righteousness. Please do not be satisfied with comfortable righteousness. Because you will not be living the, the beautiful, lovely, liberating life that our Lord Jesus asks you to live. And we won't be salt. And we won't be light to a world that needs to see the power of the gospel. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, your word tells us to be perfect as you are perfect. Father, we can't do that and we need your help. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit who empowers us. Thank you that you see us as perfect in Jesus. Thank you for the cross where your son satisfied the demands of the law. And thank you for the cross where you promise us forgiveness for the times that we constantly fail. Father, for those of us here who struggle with anger and hatred and unkind words, radically change us, please. And for those of us who struggle with lust 
again, change our eyes, change our minds. Please change our hearts, Lord. Lord, we want to live for you uh, because we love you. In Jesus' name.